This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the new Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 10th. Today, National Security Advisor John Bolton is out. The trouble with Apple's product announcements and new research about the risks of vaping. John Hudson, National Security Reporter. When did you find out that National Security Advisor John Bolton was out? Well, I was sitting at my desk and my colleague who doesn't miss anything on Twitter, just said, he did it. He fired him. It's over. So everything started with a tweet. President Trump said that he was relieving his national security advisor. A few minutes later, John Bolton tweeted and said, let's be clear, uh, I resigned last night. So with that tweet, we saw what could be sort of the opening bell and what could be a more confrontational, at least publicly confrontational, posture between Bolton and the president. So you have been reporting over the last several weeks about some of the ways in which this relationship between John Bolton and the president had become somewhat combative. And specifically, I have this headline from August 30th. Bolton sidelined from Afghanistan policy as his standing with Trump falters. So tell me more about what was brewing behind the scenes. So behind the scenes, Ambassador Bolton was being sidelined from things that would be viewed as core to the job of national security advisor. He wasn't originally invited to a meeting in August that was basically setting out the future of Afghan policy. He wasn't even allowed to take with him the draft agreement that the U.S. was working on with the Taliban to ensure a lasting peace deal. This was something that Taliban officials had seen, and Bolton wasn't allowed to bring it with him. Actually, the top negotiators, Almay Khalilzad, said, you know, you can read it in my presence, but you can't take it away. Which is a pretty galling, I think, offensive thing to say to the national security advisor. In any other administration, the national security advisor would have full and complete access to this type of document. So it is a historically somewhat unprecedented situation. And why was it that there were all these moments where people didn't want to include John Bolton or didn't believe in the quality of his advice or his takes on things? Well, time and time again, you will talk to officials in this administration that said Bolton's team would have a habit of losing and leaking. And that means they would come away, they'd have a decision to make on national security. The president would express his view, and sometimes that would differ from Bolton's view. And instead of just accepting that loss, he would then take action to try to undo that or override that decision. Sometimes that would be by going over their heads. Other times that would mean leaking to the press uh, in their view. Uh, Bolton always denied that he was leaking, but uh, that was a widely held impression among officials. There was also this perception of John Bolton as hawkish and as someone who 
in many ways inspired the president to act on his most aggressive instincts? Yeah. So uh, he came in and we saw some of the most aggressive and radical shifts in Trump's policy at the advent of Bolton's tenure as national security advisor. That's when Trump pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal. This was something that Bolton's predecessors had urged the president not to do. Um, had urged different ways of going about this, but the policy became very committed to the destruction of uh, an Obama-era foreign policy uh, signature move. We also saw uh, the president really come to the brink of confrontation with other countries. After the Iranians shot down a U.S. drone, uh, uh, President Trump came very close to ordering military strikes on the country that could have very easily escalated into a broader conflict in the Middle East. Uh, Ambassador Bolton was pushing hard for the president to move forward on that and order those strikes. Um, and so there have been a number of moves where uh, Bolton was consistently on the side of advocating for either military force or tougher economic sanctions uh, against everyone from China to Iran uh, to Venezuela. So if the White House is losing this voice that had advocated for more confrontation, more military aggression, what is going to happen now? In reality, John Bolton is not the only hawk in this administration. So we shouldn't expect a radically different shift on policy. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is clearly Trump's most trusted advisor, is a hawk himself. Uh, and so um, where there were differences between Pompeo and Bolton, those differences were largely tactical and bureaucratic. They were not necessarily ideological differences. So we shouldn't expect to see a dramatic shift uh, in policy. You might see less internal d disagreements uh, and less uh, sort of mistakes when it comes to the choreography of this administration's foreign policy, canceling a last-minute summit. Um, uh, some of these moves are the result of President Trump's unorthodox governing style. They're also the result of a lot of clashing happening behind the scenes, creating chaos in the foreign policy process. What do you think John Bolton's departure says about the state of the Trump White House right now, particularly from a foreign policy and national security perspective? Well, we are going to turn the page. We're turning the page on the Bolton era. Uh, which advocated for the most aggressive possible uh, responses to uh, America's adversaries. Uh, Pompeo is still going to advocate for aggressive responses, uh, but not to the extent that, that Bolton has. And so who comes next is, is a big open-ended question. There's different people under consideration. Steve Began, the, uh, uh, the president's uh, negotiator for North Korea, is under consideration. Uh, people have also looked at uh, a retired U.S. Colonel McGregor, uh, who has been a Fox News personality, who has less of a hawkish, uh, more of a restraint-oriented foreign policy view. Whoever comes next will be able to determine what the character of this administration's foreign policy might look like a little bit better. But make no mistake, Trump is still going to be in charge. John Hudson reports on national security for The Post. On Monday afternoon, Secretary of State Pompeo spoke at a press briefing where reporters asked him about Bolton's departure. 
Was it because of this disagreement? I'll, I'll, I'll leave to the president to talk about uh, the reasons he made the decision. But I, but I would say this, the president's entitled to the staff that he wants. At, at, at any moment. This is a staff person who works directly for the President of the United States, and he, he should have people that he trusts and values and whose uh, efforts and judgments benefit him in delivering American foreign policy. It's what, uh, as Cabinet Member Secretary Mnuchin, I try and do each and every day, and when the President makes a decision like this, he's well within his rights to do so. Let's talk about iPhone. Today, Apple held one of its signature product announcements. It's a big event where the company announces new features for Apple computers, devices, and iPhones. It's become so essential for hundreds and hundreds of millions of people all over the world. It's changed industries and led to the creation of entirely new ones, and it's made a profound impact on all of our daily lives. Whenever Apple makes an announcement, basically the entire tech world pays attention. But for some developers who make apps for Apple products, these big announcements can be very bad news. When we started in 2008, the App Store wasn't open yet, and our company opened up in March. This is Wade Beavers. He's the former CEO of a company called Do App International. Apple informed everybody in May of 2008 that they were going to only take 500 apps when the App Store opened up. So like all new companies at that point, we decided to make as many apps as we could and submit them. We had submitted four apps and were fortunate enough to have three of our apps reviewed and also approved to be part of the first 500. And of course, the MyLight flashlight was one of those. This app came around at a time when iPhones simply didn't have flashlights. So what Duapp provided was basically one of the first flashlights on iPhones. The flashlight app moved into the top 10 in the overall apps when the App Store opened up. So we had millions and millions of downloads. In fact, I think our latest active number when you talk about active daily active users was well over 10 million active users a day. Then in 2013, Apple announced something that would change Wade's small company forever. You have those switches that you just want to get to really quickly from wherever you are. Well, now with Control Center, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you need to find something, your flashlight's right there. And we all in the room looked at each other kind of like silently. And of course, as CEO, I just said, well, there goes that revenue. It went from about $10,000 a month in ad revenue to about two in the first month, and then it slowly just dwindled over that. Duapp was not compensated by Apple ever after that. They eventually sold the company, and they did fine, but it wasn't, you know, the raging success that they thought it would be. Reed Albergati reports on consumer tech for The Post. He says that Duapp is just one of the many companies that Apple has copied. I mean, this is so common. Apple basically says okay, we're going to take your idea and we're going to either create our own app or we're going to just incorporate the functionality directly into our operating system. And is there a way for developers to protect themselves from this or do they have any legal rights when it comes to this? I mean, are they, do they patent their apps or is their code protected by copyright or anything like that? 
So your copyright is protected. So Apple can't just take the name of your app in most cases, unless it's something you know super generic. But the very few people ever patent an app idea, and that's it's just partly because the way patent law has evolved, it doesn't really protect software patents. So people just don't bother, and it's kind of just an accepted practice that you you can make some money on the app store, but if you're really successful, Apple may actually just decide to take your idea. And it's funny how many developers I talked to about this who have had this happen. Most of them don't really harbor any ill will toward Apple. They kind of just accept this as a, as a fact in the world of software development. So who else has this happened to? Like, what are, the, what are the apps that I have on my phone right now that started out as things that people came up with on their own? I mean, the list is very long. You know, one that comes to mind is the augmented reality measuring app that is included on your phone now. I don't know if you ever use that. The one where if you, like, pointed at something on a wall and pointed at something else on a wall, it'll tell you exactly, like, how many inches it is? Exactly. That's a great app. It's a great app. And there were lots of these that came out when, when Apple first introduced its AR kit, this augmented reality capability. That was something people thought of. And Apple just said, you know, we're going to just do that our, ourselves. That's kind of an example of a, of a utility that's more recent than the Flashlight app. But at the most recent um, conference back in June, Apple announced, for instance, that it was going to do feminine health technology. It was going to incorporate more of that into its health app. And one of those is, you know, tracking your menstrual cycle. There's like a ton of them on, in the app store. And, and I know a lot of people who have them and they use it to track their period. That's right. And so, you know, I interviewed the founder of Clue, which is one of the more popular ones. And she had sent a developer from her company to California from Germany to attend the conference. And I interviewed the developer who, who went there and she said it was like people were coming up to her and offering their condolences. Like Apple had just destroyed their company and she got defensive and she was saying, you know, no, like we can still, we can power through, we can still offer services beyond what Apple offers. But then she kind of acknowledged that there may be things that she won't be able to do that Apple can do. For instance, Apple will be able to collect all this data through its health app that it may not share with outside companies like Clue. So Apple could have an advantage. Is this something that people are worried about from like a systemic level? The fact that Apple has so much power that they can just take people's apps, take people's ideas, incorporate it into their own company and not compensate them at all. I think this is something that regulators are definitely taking a look at lawmakers as well. So Spotify, which came up with this whole idea that they would wrap up all these music rights and charge you a monthly fee to stream unlimited music. It was a pretty cutting edge idea when they came out with it. Well, Apple is now offering the same thing for the same monthly fee, and it's called Apple Music. And they compete against Spotify. Now, Spotify's filed a complaint in the European Union saying that Apple is competing unfairly against Spotify because it has advantages as the owner of the App Store platform. For instance, it can do things with marketing, sending people push notifications to get them to sign their friends up for Apple Music. Spotify can't do that. 
Apple doesn't have to pay the you know, 30% fee for signing people up for the service through the App Store. And this kind of dynamic has also caught the attention of presidential candidate and Senator Elizabeth Warren, who said in an interview with The Verge that she doesn't believe Apple should both own the App Store and have its own apps competing against other companies on its App Store. And I talked to antitrust experts, and they felt that one of the things that may that may kind of complicate the issue for Apple is that Apple has all this data. They can see how often people or how much time people spend on these apps. I mean, I interviewed the former head of App Store Review, Philip Shoemaker, who confirmed this. He said they used to talk in meetings about you know, how much time people were spending on various apps. And he said that that kind of information would be invaluable in deciding how to, you know, that the product roadmap, which apps to create. Then they could literally look at the list of third party apps that are most popular and be like, okay, we're just going to assign people to make new versions of all these top apps. Basically, I mean, that's what he's saying. Reed Albergati reports on consumer technology for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now one more thing about the mysterious lung illness tied to vaping. I'm Lena Sun. I'm a reporter for The Washington Post covering health on the national staff. Earlier this summer, doctors were noticing people coming to the hospitals with these very serious lung illnesses. And they were concerned because they were mostly young and healthy people. But the lung illnesses were quite acute. They were very severe. Thank you all for joining us today for this briefing. Um, At CDC, we know and we share people's concerns about the severity of these illnesses associated with the use of e-cigarette products, which is also known as vaping. We now have over 450 possible cases in 33 states. And there seems to be a chemical exposure associated with these illnesses and As the awareness of this has increased among docs and hospitals and public health officials, people are beginning to realize, oh, maybe that case from earlier was also associated with this. So they're going back and doing like a look back. And at the same time, they are realizing that every single person who has gotten sick has used an e-cigarette vaping device in the last 30 days and often in the week before they got sick. We're keeping the families and friends of all those affected by this illness in our thoughts, and CDC, FDA, and our state partners are working around the clock to find out what is making people sick. I reported that they had found vitamin E acetate, which is an oil derived from vitamin E, 
in marijuana products that the FDA tested and the New York State Health Department lab had tested. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be the thing. You know, that could be the marker for something else. And that could turn into something else when you inhale it. Marijuana is legal in some states, but not legal in others. And under federal law, it is illegal. So that makes getting information just from a basic collection standpoint tricky because people, especially if you're a young adult, you may not be completely forthcoming in telling your doctor, especially if your parents are in the room, that, yeah, you were vaping THC. So that helps to delay the investigation. And then you have the entire e-cigarette industry, which the FDA is going to be regulating more tightly, but not until later this year. And that is like a whole separate can of worms. Many of these ingredients that are in e-cigarettes have not been tested for their long-term health impact. And advocates say, well, it's safer than smoking a regular cigarette because there's not all that tar. But nobody has really looked deeply or researched what are the long-term health effects of inhaling all this other stuff into your lungs. If you think about when you take a shower, you come out and there's all that steam, and that steam condenses on your mirror, so it goes from steam form to liquid form. The same thing happens with an oil. If you heat up an oil in one of these devices, some of these oils like the vitamin E acetate, the boiling point is 360 degrees Fahrenheit. So the oil turns into the vape cloud, but when it condenses into your lungs, it's like becomes like that mist in the shower. It just coats the inside of your lung. And pulmonologists, doctors who specialize in lung disease, think that is not great to have oil in your lungs. Lena Sun reports on health for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the stories on today's episode, check out postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.